0: Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of the Publisher Lab. I am Tyler Bishop. Joined as always alongside me today is Shelby Kang. Shelby, uh, we are in the middle of Q2 here in 2019 and digital publishing, the future of digital publishing, I should say, could not look more, um, I guess, hard to define.
1: Yes, that is definitely true there's a lot of changes going on right now in a lot of different aspects
0: i've never felt so much like uh, there's just a lot of uncertainty meaning mm-hmm. um meaning that i think in the past like you can look at these big institutions or ecosystems that we're all a part of and it's really hard to imagine it changing and i think you know in this day and age it's very easy to look around to find those things today um, But I think just based not just on historical facts, but just the nature of things right now, I think we can look at a couple major things that could potentially uh, upset the apple cart, if you will. And um, so, yeah, I just would say there's never been a better time to be listening to podcasts like this and gathering news and information because I I think we're just in a time where things, like you said, are changing.
1: Yeah. Speaking of gathering news and information... um, A couple of topics today um, come from your Five Bullet Friday. I know we mentioned that last week. Um, And I'm not trying to... Sell the newsletter. Sell the (laughs) newsletter, but this week...
0: Well, we typically pull... Like, that newsletter usually contains... You know, I try to find the topics I think are the most relevant and just pick five of them. So um, there's always a decent amount of overlap.
1: Yeah, so the first one I wanted to start off with this week um, was an article, different stats about Twitter users. Um, So according to a new report from the Pew Research Center, the top 10% of active Twitter users generate 80% of tweets in the United States. So these numbers are a little bit disproportionate if you're comparing it to the 80-20 rule or the Pareto principle, but members of this active group are more likely to be women, post about social issues, and they're also more likely to use automated posting methods. Um, So these methods allow others to tweet on their behalf When it comes to Twitter users in general, they tend to be younger than the average United States adult. Um, They're more likely to have earned a college degree, and they're actually more likely to be Democrats. So out of all the users surveyed, 36% of users identified with the Democratic Party, 21% identified with the Republican Party, and 29% of them consider themselves independent.
0: And that is in America, correct?
1: That's yes. That's only in the U.S.
0: So did any of those things strike you as surprising?
1: I guess not really, although 10% generating 80% of tweets is kind of a little surprising.
0: Yeah, that that part's, you know, that's the headline, but I think there's a lot of really interesting information in that. To me, the real aspect of this that gets buried, and I actually saw it, and uh, funny enough, in a tweet. Somebody tweeted this chart. And it's the average daily growth of Twitter basically over the last decade. And when you really think about it, um, Twitter, it's still growing, even though it's, like, not growing at the rate of any of the other ones, um, nor has it... Um, basically ever, like, really reach the same amplitude as something like Facebook, um, it's somehow through, I mean, it's one of the, it's it's a legacy social platform, if you will, and it's still here, it's still relevant, and one of the things you mentioned, the average user is younger than the average adult, in America, at least, and um, I would just say, that one of the things I think Twitter may have differentiated themselves in being is being a platform that's actually going to be here for good and I, I it's I'm probably eat my own words saying that but the thing is is it does seem to fill a void or have something there's something appealing about it that maybe isn't mass appealing to everybody but I think uh, you know a lot of reporters use it a lot of people that are in media use it and I think there's a certain portion of the population that likes being plugged into that network and um, Twitter's done a good job of evolving alongside that and they may have like one of the most undisruptible formats, um, I and guess and I I know that there's probably a lot of people that would disagree with that, um, which I saw they were meeting with Trump this week, uh, Dorsey and some of the other people from Twitter. So um, they're certainly at risk of regulation and, and all the other types of things that could potentially upset the social networks, um, but I do think it's interesting that they've been able to stay the course so long.
1: Yeah, when you compare it to like Facebook, I feel like definitely has a lot older of an audience compared to Twitter and then Snapchat is a little bit younger mm-hmm. um, compared to Twitter. It's kind of in that, that sweet spot almost.
0: Yeah, and we've talked a little bit about things like, you know, the kind of generational um, like migration from platform, you know, you talk about from Facebook to Instagram, from Instagram to Snapchat and now Snapchat maybe down to TikTok as you kind of like layer down the generations. Um but I do. But Twitter seems to be one that's like appealed to all those generations, but not all of them. Just like a small segment. Yeah, I mean, I guess the minority segment of those. Um, but one of the things that's interesting about Facebook, I read this week as well, is that despite all the kind of hashtag delete Facebook or like, you know, the the fact that their audience is getting older, people are leaving the platform. I saw that their active daily users have actually grown eight uh, percent quarter over quarter. Um, And it's something that was mentioned by Google, actually, at our recent event, which is that uh, in emerging parts of the world, Facebook is actually growing quite a bit.
1: Yeah. Um, You mentioned TikTok. That was another topic from the Five Bullet Friday. So how publishers are using TikTok. So we've talked about TikTok in maybe one or two other episodes really briefly. um, For those who don't know what it is It's a short form. Join the rest of people, (laughs) right? (laughs) Even Ask your kids. Yeah, I feel like I'm one of the youngest people in the office, and I've never used TikTok. But it's a short form video app, and it's actually a new way for publishers to reach young consumers. Um, so about 60% of the US audience on TikTok is between 16 to 24 years old, and users are heavily engaged. Um, the average time spent on the app is 46 minutes per day. Wow. Um, although there's no current way for publishers to directly monetize on the app, it's still a good place for publishers to extend where their content lives. Um, NBC News has started posting their video series, Stay Tuned, um, which they also publish on Snapchat. Um, but it kind of still seems that publishers are torn between experimenting on the platform and not. I wouldn't really, really know <laughs> even how to go about doing it, quite honestly, but um, it's definitely out there. So you're,
0: you're not, I mean, like the article that we shared, I think it was uh, it was a Digiday one. And I think uh, I saw Brian Morrissey, who is the editor at uh, Digiday. Uh, I think that's what his, his title is. But he, he's one of the, the head guys there, and he'd... he'd um, either tweeted out or retweeted a, uh, it was like a comic, and it was basically of like an executive at a media business saying like, we need a TikTok strategy. And somebody saying, what's TikTok? And he said, I don't know. That's why we need a strategy. And I think a lot of publishers, uh, especially major media brands, I think the smaller independent guys probably in general sit back and like are more likely to say, "We'll, we'll join the back half of this if it ends up being popular. But I think people that try to be on the front end are Thinking about like how can I take my content or how can I be on this platform? And like you said, you know, you have trouble understanding exactly like how you would engage people on there. Um, the the average age is really young. It's it sort of reminds me of like a Vine on steroids to a certain extent. If uh, you've never messed with the platform, I have it on my phone. I've I've messed around with it a little bit. It's not it's not appealing to me. I'm 31 years old, so I'm not inside of that demographic. Um, The what I find interesting is my my father in law, uh, my my wife's father. He he loves it. He is on there and he sends us stuff that he's like does on there that he thinks is funny. So
1: uh, he's making content himself. He's not just using it to watch, but is he making videos? Yes,
0: he actually does make videos. I think he just sends them to like friends and family because he thinks they're funny. Because you can, I guess, you can send them via text and things like that too. Um, which is what he uses it for. I don't think he's like the like his usage is probably indicative of like how most people are using it. But uh, several of his daughters, not my wife, but several of his other daughters, my sisters-in-law, they uh, they teach school for a living, and so they have lots of kids that are using it. So they're always showing him like the funny videos that the kids are making, and so I think he's like inspired and wished, wishes that he was you know a kid of that age that he could play with the TikTok stuff. He he's creative like that. That's
1: actually really interesting. But
0: what what it makes me think of is uh, when I hear brands basically trying to um, figure out how they can be on TikTok, I think I I don't know that that's going to work. So if you're listening to this and you're like, what can I do that's actionable? How can I take advantage of it? I don't know that you can um, from the standpoint of I think what we're going to see is TikTok publishers, meaning like. Basically, probably kids um, or people a little bit older that have figured out how to, like, amass an audience on TikTok are going to look to find ways to basically take them into other things, use their influence, be quote unquote influencers, and then build a brand around that. And then eventually TikTok will, once they've got to a point where they feel like, hey, we've amassed enough users, they'll start Opening it up to advertisers in different ways, and and those core publishers that started on TikTok will will find ways to monetize on that. But I I don't know that I I think if you're thinking I'm going to get onto this platform and like amass website traffic, I don't think that's going to happen.
1: Yeah, you mentioned earlier about um, TikTok strategy. I think in the article, um, a representative from ESPN who recently joined TikTok, um, was asked about their strategy and they basically said, we don't have one yet. Yeah. Um, I'm just surprised that you know publishers like BuzzFeed that do seem a little bit younger aren't on the platform yet, but like we said, there's still a lot to discover there.
0: I think there's a certain portion of when you're uh, a brand like BuzzFeed, you also understand what it's what it would mean for like you said they're a little bit like more of a younger hipper feel like to go onto a platform and almost be lame and not get it. I feel like that actually hurts you a little bit like if this is this younger audience and you go on there and they're like they don't get it like then all of a sudden you become you know Gen Z's um, you know like brand and not whatever. I guess are they technically gen Z? No, uh, I guess those sixteen, the 16-year-olds 16 now. Oh,
1: I think they are Gen Z. Yeah,
0: so they're that younger Gen Z generation.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, the next topic, funny enough, is also from Five Bullet Friday. Um, so this one is a survey of 1,400 Google searchers, um, and this one is from Moz. And so nearly three-fourths of respondents from the survey are from the United States and also under the age of 40. Um, the vast majority of respondents use Google three or more times a day to search for things, and the frequency of Google usage is also inversely correlated with age, which means the younger people are, the more likely they'll use Google three or more times a day. Um, age also plays a role in whether searches, searchers click on organic results or ads. So searchers ages 16 and up are 200% more likely than 18 to 21-year-olds to not discriminate between paid and organic listings. So instead, they'll just click on whatever results answers their question. Um, Younger people are also more likely to stay within the first one to two pages of search results while older people are more willing to explore additional researches. Um, And here's some good news for publishers. Only 22.1% of searchers use featured snippets to completely answer their questions without clicking on another link. And it's also reported that most users are on the fence about the trustworthiness of um, featured snippets. So, survey results for Google's Knowledge Panel were pretty similar to Featured Snippets as well.
0: Yeah, so I mean, all this is fascinating. Uh, I, you know, typically when survey stuff like this comes out, I'm not a huge, uh, I don't buy into it wholesale because it's 1,400 people. But um, Moz, uh, their data scientist, Dr. Pete, who we know, um, was involved in, in putting this together. So I, I had a good idea that it was is fairly uh, well put together and good quality. And so I found a lot of things in there really interesting. One is One is something Google has said before, which is basically that the knowledge panel or rich snippets that appear in search don't necessarily deter somebody from clicking on results. And uh, that does appear to be the case, at least to some degree. Um, It may benefit you to be that, like, like if you're the link in the rich snippet, the chance of your link getting clicked versus somebody else's probably goes up. So it may harm overall search results, but help certain ones. Um, also, that was really interesting is people seem to actually be pretty good. So I, I saw some data around how many people think they're clicking on ads versus how many actually are. And it actually seems pretty accurate. So, I mean, there is this kind of accusation that Google has made the ads look less and less like ads over the years. And um, and this is, you know, you know the conspiracy theories, you know, people are going to click on more ads makes Google more money. Um, but for the most part, I think, you know, generationally we get better and better at being able to differentiate that. I also think the knowledge graph takeaway for me is that, you know, I, I I I use Google as much as anybody and I have my own respective search habits and things along those lines. And I would say generally, like, I do find that a lot of the knowledge graph and rich snippet information, if it isn't something really basic, like, what was I searching the other day? I was looking for something around... Um, I was reading, I was trying to research and read something about neurotransmitters in the brain and like what the precursors of it were. It's weird, weird query. But anyways, I had Googled this and I knew that L-tryptophan, and this is like getting way off into the weeds, but I knew L-tryptophan and 5-HTP were connected somehow, but I couldn't remember if L-tryptophan converted to 5-HTP or 5-HTP converted to L-tryptophan, and I searched it in a couple different ways, and none of the snippets really answered the question in a way that I was like, this is correct, and so I ended up having to click on several articles before I actually like got to the core of that information. So I think outside of these really basic questions that you would ask a search engine, which it's just going to give you answers like Alexa or whatever would, I think for the most part, when you're even seeking something where there is maybe a pretty clear answer, like you kind of want to get into it and assess the whole of the content or the whole of the website that you're on for its overall credibility. Like, just because Google pulled something off that site and showed it to me, like, I don't necessarily take that for granted. Like, I want to go, let me see the source. Let me see it for myself, right? Um, So, yeah, I I don't know that um, the demise of uh, search results is as bad as, you know, sometimes we make it out to be because of knowledge graph and things like that.
1: The last thing I have on deck today is a new Instagram story feature. So there's a new feature um that allows you to pretty much just quiz your followers so it's been rolled out in instagram stories and it allows users to customize the question name the color and you can add between two to four answers and it's a quick and easy way to just engage with users
0: so what i my my thoughts on this are we probably have a lot of publishers that listen to this podcast that that likely aren't using Instagram to a great degree. Um, even those that are, it's th- this is a great idea. But um, if you at least have some presence, uh, what's really great about this is you could quiz your audience about different things. Um, maybe even we talked about this with LinkedIn last week. But you know, ask things that are like kind of salacious but not clickbaity. I think you know. Um, Uh, on LinkedIn, you know, the professional version of it was like, uh, what skill is something that everybody should have that's, you know, um, in the workforce or, you know, something like that where people are going to have strong opinions that they want to share or whatever. Um, And you could quiz people about things like that, that, you know, everybody probably has like a thumbs up or thumbs down opinion on. And then you could essentially take those results and then you could use it to basically create content out of, right? So, ask all your followers a series of questions and they're going to create content for you. So you can then go in and say, like, I asked all of these questions and then here's what everybody said. And I would I would be willing to bet that those con- that content would be highly engaged with because people are going to want to see the answers to everything. And then the comment section of your site may be a really good place for people to engage there. And then you're getting longer time on site. You know, um, There's a lot of really cool benefits to that. So if you even have a modest following on Instagram, you could probably do that.
1: Yeah. And then there are other features in the Instagram story that you could probably use to, um, you know, create some ideas or create some, generate some content for you to write on the, the questions or the ask me anything one. Um, and then there's other like polling ones as well, but, um, that's all we have for this week.
0: Yeah, that's it. And, uh, you know, the podcast continues to grow. Uh, I think I mentioned to you before this podcast, we had someone from another digital publishing podcast reach out to us as a business, uh, Ezoic, which we both work for, and uh, asked if we wanted to advertise on their podcast, and I asked them how many listeners they had, and, and what they told me back, I my first reaction was, we have more listeners than that, and so we're really thankful that uh, you listen to this podcast and come to us for... Um, expertise on these different subjects. Hopefully we continue to provide some insights that are helpful. Um, if there's particular topics or things you'd like for us to get into more, you can tweet us at, at Ezoic or uh, you can email Shelby at uh, skang at um, Other than that, if you like the show, leave us a review on iTunes. Uh, we're very grateful for those and we'll catch you next time on the Publisher Lab.